Welcome back to the program. We're going to begin with a scripture reading and a prayer led by Father Lewis. Our passage today in honor of uh, good John the 23rd, good Pope John, is uh, Peter's confession of Jesus. When Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said in reply, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him in reply, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly ordered his disciples to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Good and gracious God, on this occasion of the memorial of uh, Pope John, uh, Pope St. John the Twenty-Third, we ask for his intercession and for your blessings upon us in our conversation today and upon all of our listeners, that uh, we may uh, know your will, discern it, and we may have the fortitude to carry it out according to, your, according to your great plan. In all this we ask, through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, uh, Father Lewis. It's uh, well. It's great to be with you as we get uh, launched into the program today. Um, so, so much to cover. Uh, I, the first thing that jumps out at me is uh, names, right? So, it's I, I said, is it Pope Saint or Saint Pope? And you kind of answered it in, in, in the prayer. <laughs> do you know why they do that? Like, why is it Pope Saint rather than Saint Pope? Well, I figure I always figured is you know Pope is um, is the title or the honorific indicating his ministry. Whereas if you're canonized and you're in heaven, saints kind of becomes part of your name now. So, um, so it's almost like Saint hyphen John the 23rd. And, um, Anyway, that's how that's how I kind of just figured it in my head. I don't know if that's like official church teaching or anything, but just say um, it with confidence, Father. Everyone's yes, gonna, that is no official gonna, church teaching. They'll send me the email saying, "How dare you mislead the faithful regarding Pope Saint versus Saint Pope?" Uh, but no, I believe you're correct. You, 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 that ding, ding, ding. That's a good answer, oh, good. Father Lewis. You got you got the right answer. But you talked about that concept of a name, uh, even the idea that popes take a name. Mm-hmm. I actually don't know the history of that. Like, when did popes first say, I'm going to choose a name for when I become pope, when I'm elevated to that position, to that role, that office, as compared to just keeping their own name and then just becoming the Archbishop of Rome? Yeah. You know? Uh, do you know when that is? I don't, but I wonder if it was maybe very early on, because um, you know one of the first popes, I think the sixth pope was Sixtus, and I, I don't know my Latin as well, but maybe that's where we get the number six, and then Clement, I think, was uh, just before after him, and maybe Clement, like clemency, you know, maybe he changed it to kind of reflect what he had uh, hoped would be a cornerstone of his ministry. The first pope to have his name changed, of course, was Simon, who became Peter. But Linus, Cletus, um, I don't know if they indicate anything, but it seemed, I don't know, I'm just guessing it would be early on because um, I think pretty soon we start getting like Sixtus the Second, you know, so maybe he changed his name because he wanted to honor Sixtus the First, you know, for mm-hmm. example. Um, but that's the that's the best guess I have. <laughs> no, I like that. And and there's actually meaningfulness connected to John the Twenty Third and like people Pope John Paul the Second, mm-hmm. right? So that that was the only the second instance of a double name. Yeah, mm-hmm. following after John, John Paul the First. <laughs> and do you remember the rationale for John Paul the First? Why why he chose that? He wanted to honor John the Twenty Third and Paul the Sixth, um, kind of the um, the leaders of the. Um, uh, the renewal of the church with the Second Vatican Council. Now, this is a an anecdote that I've heard. I don't know if it's accurate, but when John Paul the first was elected, he he uh, they asked him what name do you take, and he had said John Paul the first. And the guy running the show, I can't think of the Italian word for who runs the conclave, but he kind of leaned in and said, "You are the first. You don't call yourself the first till there's a second. And he had said in reply, I know what I said, and I will not be long on this earth, and the man sitting behind me will take up the mantle, or something like this. And they would look later on when John Paul II was elected, and in that conclave, they elected John Paul I, he was seated behind 
John Paul the First. So he had some kind Literally, of prophetic physically behind, physically behind wow, him. Wow, yeah. I never heard that. Yeah, it's an interesting story when I heard it. And um, and uh, anyway, I, maybe that's just pure myth or anecdotal. But I, I had heard that. I thought that's pretty. That's pretty impressive. And maybe it's one of those kind of legends that kind of arose. Like, why did his pontificate last only thirty days or whatever? He kind of foresaw that, and then he gave up the ghost uh, 33 days later or whenever that was. But anyway, yeah, an interesting story regardless. Well, it's funny, the, the, and the, the aspect of it that I remember, I, don't rem- I hadn't heard any of those, was that there was a big question whether the Pope following Paul VI was going to give a signal that he is continuing on the path of Paul VI by taking that name, or... Was he going to recover the original spirit of the Second Vatican Council by choosing a name that would be John the Twenty Fourth? Oh. And so, you know, there was that sense that John had launched the council in a certain direction, and Paul the Sixth, through some of his um, his papal teaching, had um, made maybe more narrow or conservative or restrictive. Um, uh, ways forward, mm-hmm. right? Because again, in the in the late seventies, this is when you have all kinds of like craziness going on. The Dutch Catechism, mm-hmm. and 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 so you've got this like divide: is it concilium or is it communio? Oh, right. right, the two journals in terms of the leading theologians of the day. So everyone's looking. Okay, is it going to be in the spirit of John or in the spirit of Paul? And, and what he ended that swift to? debate. He said, "What did he? He did a he did a perfect Karenism. Yes, <laughs> there we go. I will be John Paul." And and everyone's like, "What? What have you done?" And and then John Paul II, obviously coming in afterwards, mm. um, uh, continued on to say, "I want to honor what John Paul I started." So, yeah. but great stories. And then, do you know also the the story behind John the Twenty Third's name, like? Twenty third. That's the longest. Like that's, that's the most numbers. The most, the most numbers, right? <laughs> because Gregory has like sixteen, but not the one's close to John. Yeah. But do you remember the story there? I don't. Well, I'd, I'd heard that there was a John the twenty third a, a long time ago that was um, an anti pope, and um, and but I think I I don't know if that's where you're getting at, but uh, but then when he picked John twenty third, now people are like conspiracy theory or whatever, like oh oh he's another anti pope or something, and I don't believe any of that, but. Maybe he tried to take that to bring healing to the name John as a as a papal name. Yeah, I, I thought it was that there was a John the Twenty Second that had a degree of controversy around him, and so the question was, oh. can there be a, a the Twenty Third because of the because of that other Twenty Third? Right? Okay. So was he legitimate or not? And so there was sort of like, okay, leave those names on the side. Uh-huh. Um, but he, John the Twenty Third was like, ah, you know what? We're moving forward here. Mm. We're moving forward. <laughs> So uh, I, I think that's really, um, it's fascinating to think about that idea of, of names and how names are so significant. Yeah. Um, and that's still, that, that shows up in religious life as well, right? So yeah. a dear friend of mine, Mark, he entered the Discalced Carmelites and he took as a um, professed name, Joseph. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And so that was, he was born on March the 19th. Oh, wow. So uh, it was a beautiful way of him saying, I see an indicator in my birth date to the call that the Lord has for me as it concerns the religious life. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, our sisters here in the diocese, like the Sister Mary Mother Church, they would take a new name. And uh, one I'm thinking of right now, her name, she works at the cathedral, I think, as the as the DRE. And her religious name is Sister um, Pascalina Marie. Uh, she, named, she chose that name because she has a devotion to St. John the Baptist, she told me. And um, in her name day or her her the day she entered the convent or took temporal vows was on the martyrdom of John the of John uh, the the Baptist so you know Pascal you know kind of like his passion um, anyway that was an interesting story why she did that she's always had devotion and uh, apparently to, to him so yeah the reasons why they cho- choose their names are always great stories I think well even Pope Francis right mm-hmm. it's amazing that no one ever chose Francis before and um, it, do you remember there was that big question after which Francis right right was it Francis Xavier, the Jesuit, or was it obviously Francis of Assisi? Right. And uh, him being a Jesuit, you know, mm. you, you could really wonder. And yeah. it was clear that he was following after Francis of Assisi. Yeah, so we have a Jesuit pope wearing a Dominican habit taking a, taking a Franciscan name. <laughs> <laughs> a little 
little sign of confusion right there. Yeah. All right. <laughs> We're not going to go there. Um, it was interesting. I was going to um, shifting gears a little bit. It's the encounter with Christ that brings about the change of the name, right? The encounter with Christ that Simon has where he becomes Peter. And uh, one of the most profound places where we have that encounter with Christ today is in receiving Holy Communion. And so I had an interesting encounter with Christ, with Father Nagel. So I was on the west side. I was speaking at St. Monica's and uh, at Star of the Sea. And um, on Friday morning, um, this would have been a week ago, on Friday morning, uh, the first Friday, and it was also the Feast of the Little Flower, I had um, gone to Father Nagel's uh, early morning Mass, but didn't have a chance to connect with him before Mass. And so time for communion comes, and I go, I'm in, in line, going forward to receive Holy Communion, and I'm noticing that people are receiving in the hand. And I had remembered that there was a pastoral letter put out saying, we are looking for uniformity and practice, and let's have everyone receive in the hand. And um, as you know, Father, my uh, preference is to receive on the tongue as a way of really fostering a sense of reverence for the priesthood, reverence for the Eucharist, and reverence for the idea of communicating. How is the, the communication occurring? And um, we have found, just as a family, it has increased the sense of devotion and the sense of the reverence of the act of receiving Holy Communion, as well as other practical things as well that are connected to the holiness of the Eucharist. So that's us. That's us. And so coming forward to receive Holy Communion from Father Nagel, I was like, I didn't have a chance to clarify what's the policy and what am I permitted to do. And just watching everybody, I'm like, well, I'm just going to receive on the hand. And as I as, as I stepped forward, uh, Father Nagel, he, you know, body of Christ, and then he was uh, approached my face like he was going to give me communion on the tongue. And then he saw my hands out and he kind of looked at me with a kind of like, what? A puzzled <laughs> look on his face. And he gave me communion in the hands, and I had a puzzled look on my face as a result of that gesture that he made towards me, and I received Holy Communion, and um, and only found out afterwards that um, it is now permitted um, from the Archbishop for Catholics in the uh, Archdiocese of Seattle to receive on the tongue if that's their preference. Now, I don't know how that works itself out parish to parish, but hey, good Catholics, good fo- I should, it's not that you're not a good Catholic if you don't receive on the tongue, <laughs> but for those for whom receiving on the tongue is an important part of expressing reverence and preparing yourself with devotion and faith in receiving Holy Communion, receive on the tongue. I, I think that is a beautiful thing, and um, if there's an inner conflict around that, um, let it not be so. You know, let it, let it be so that you can go forward and receive on the tongue. And so I, I love that. Thank you, Archbishop yeah. of Seattle, for um, giving that space for Catholics who want to receive communion in that way to do so. Yeah. And, the, and di- uh, our diocese in Spokane, I've, if, if Bishop Daly has put out some kind of statement to that effect, I have uh, just not heard it or seen it or received it. But uh, I find, you know, people can—I res- found people at uh, St. Mary anyway um, very reverent in how they receive— However, they receive whether it's on the tongue. I've seen very beautiful reverence and folks receive on the hand, and and um, and a number of folks will genuflect before they come forward to receive. I think John Mark does that. Yeah. And um, a number of folks will will come forward and and kneel to receive, and um, and then get up and go on. And I find beautiful reverence in all of that. It's uh, I, I if I if I have a preference um, for how people would receive, it's. It's not a matter of reverence; it's a matter of practicality. I prefer on the tongue for uh, the the reason that sometimes people receive on the hand and then they start to go away before receiving, and so I just have to like pause and watch them and make sure they receive. And you know, ninety nine point nine percent of the time they do. Every now and again, it was uh, non Catholic, just didn't know what to do, and takes the host back, and you got to take the host back from them or. You know something like that. There's almost never a problem, but it just you know it does cause me some kind of pause. I'm just going to watch, see what happens here, and and um, and I don't I don't like that. If they would receive on the hand, take a side step to the side and and consume and and then move on, like that's great. You know, practical reason. That's why I'd like to see that 
Uh, but I've seen beautiful reverence um, in any in, in all these uh, legitimate manners of, of receiving. Well, yeah, and um, when we come back, I want to talk about that because uh, we had a, a different sort of encounter at St. Mary's when you were away. Father, you leave, and look what happened. I know things we'll fall apart. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out in a minute. I'm with Father Jeff Lewis. This is Tom Carney, listening to Sound Insight. Back in a minute. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Karn. It's great to be with you today. So I'm with Father Jeff Lewis, and, and well, we're talking right now about uh, just that encounter with Christ that happens in Holy Communion and receiving Holy Communion with devotion and faith. And, and you can receive it in legitimate ways, in ways that express devotion and faith. One of the things that I saw on Monday when uh, you were not there, um, there, there was a, a different priest there, um, was that sometimes communication can lead people to confusing, like, what's permitted here? And so um, I was there with John Mark, and we were, it was on the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi, and we were going forward to receive Holy Communion. And the woman in front of John Mark, who was in front of me, um, uh, came forward, and, and it appeared as if she wanted to receive on the tongue. But because she didn't know the priest, she didn't know what was permitted. So she came forward, and the priest kind of paused and had kind of, again, a, like a funny look on his face, like, what are you doing? Because she, she was a little flustered. And so she ended up putting her hands out and she received on the hand. And John Mark was expecting that she was going to be able to receive on the tongue, saw that all that whole gesture happened. And in, in the moment just was like, okay. And so he just crossed his arms across his chest. And so he gave um, John Mark a blessing. And then John Mark went forward. And I was like, whoa, what just happened there? Well, I came forward and I, I just, I came forward and I, and I saw, how, again, the priest he, he like looked at me like, okay, what are you doing? Are you going to put forward your hands? And when I didn't, he gave me communion on the tongue, which was fine. Well, after Mass, I, I said to John Mark, um, you know, uh, would you like to receive communion? He, he will give communion. And then he told me the story that I just told you. And so I went to, you know, the, this wonderful father, and, and he was very kind about the whole thing. And it's like, well, of course. So he went uh, after Mass and um, gave John Mark communion. Um, and and for me, it was like a, it was a really interesting thing because it's like, I could have just said, ah, don't worry about it. Yeah. Right. But then when you stop and think like, what's at stake in receiving Holy Communion once? Like eternal impact, mm-hmm. like Im- impacting the, the degree of glory, right? To get really Catholic about this kind of stuff. Like I want to provide for my son. And to say, I'll go before you. I'll, I'll kind of take the hit here. And if Father turns me down, he turns me down. But he didn't. And I'm like, yes. I, I was able to like break through and get my son to be able to receive Holy Communion. Um, and so, it, you know, sometimes, folks, if, if you're not clear about things, go get things clear before Mass, mm-hmm. right? And just like find out. Um, so anyways, so that was... Not on your watch, but <laughs> but no, it was really the the outcome ended up being very beautiful. Yeah, you know, it's hard to it's hard in these days of masks and COVID to, I mean, half of what is the greatest communicator in our person, which is our face, is covered up, and so it's it's hard for me as one distributing Holy Communion, like, okay, so what what are we doing here? And and um, and one time one time I think it was at um oh it was a weekday mass I think earlier in the week and. Uh, um, and a person comes forward and, and didn't have hands up, but also had the masks on. So I'm kind of like, <laughs> what do we do here? And, uh, oh, sorry. And he took the mask off and then, you know, received on the tongue. But, um, and, you know, so we, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of comical at times, but we're trying to do our best, you know, from the receiving end and from the, from the distribution end. Well, one thing that was, um, like for me, another one of those, like, hey, think about this. Uh, if you're going to receive in the hand, be ready. Mm-hmm. Because at that same Mass where John Mark, uh, last Monday, um, that happened, um, uh, someone had come forward to receive communion, and he received it on the hand, but he still had his mask on. Mm-hmm. And in the act of taking his mask off, dropped Holy Communion, mm-hmm. dropped it on the floor. And so now he got freaked out. Mm-hmm. And went and picked up the Lord and then communicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm like, ah, that is what kind of breaks my heart yeah. as well, is the reality that fragments of the Blessed Sacrament are now left on the floor. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've seen so many accidental 
I, I truly, I do believe they're accidental. It's just fussing with the masks. I've, I, when the mask came back in Spokane, um, I've asked our parishioners at that first weekend, when you come forward, you know, please just, when you're the next in line, take the mask off and, and let it dangle from a finger or something like that. Like, you know, three seconds without the mask on is not going to hurt anything. But with that mask on, you could hurt our Lord. And, um, and you know, most people s- still aren't. They're trying to finagle away to get it through the side. And I mean, I think they're doing their, their best, I guess. But I've seen a couple hosts drop. I've seen a couple hosts break. So we got to stop everything. And, and we're going to put a pur- purificator down there and, and purify that spot after Mass. And, um, and then I heard, I didn't see it, but I heard that one host just rolled right away into our one of our um, air uh, ducts on the floor in the church. So one of my parishioners has got, um, got tools. He's an engineer and we're going to, we're going to get the host out of there. But, um, and you know, it's just, anyway, I've seen these things. It's, it's terrible, but I, you know, it's the constraint of the, of the moment, but I, I've asked parishioners, you know, please just take the mask off. And then Mm -hmm. when you've consumed, put the mask on just to as utmost care that we can have when we have the Eucharistic Lord, you know, in, 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 in our, in our possession, you know, we got to be just as careful as can be. And, um, I've seen most people are, we haven't had too many troubles, but one trouble is one too many. So, mm-hmm. yeah, well, it's, uh, it, you know, interesting. Um, we just want to foster that sense of authentic communing with the Lord that that communion brings about. Well, today on Sound Insight, it is uh, the feast of St. John, uh, Pope St. John, the 23rd. <laughs> Dang, I got caught up, <laughs> caught off guard there, father. And uh, we do have some wonderful quotes um, that come from different uh, times in the life of Pope St. John the 23rd, and uh, have a chance to go uh, through them. And we only have about 10 quotes here, so we'll easily get through. At least two of them. At least two of them. <laughs> so um, I'm actually going to begin with the, uh, the last one. The last one was about being elected Pope, and I thought that would be a cool one to begin with, Father. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, I'll let you choose, okay? So I, I'm going to put you on the spot here. There's, ah. I, I've got them all thematized for you. So I shouldn't say I. I copied and pasted from the, bishop, uh, the <laughs> bishop's conference website where they have these different, um, uh, different quotes. All right, so this is the one about being elected pope. To have accepted with simplicity the honor and the burden of the pontificate, with the joy of being able to say that I did nothing to obtain it, absolutely nothing. Indeed, I was most careful and conscientious to avoid anything that might direct attention to myself. As the voting and conclave wavered to and fro, I rejoiced when I saw the chances of my being elected diminishing and the likelihood of others, in my opinion, truly most worthy and venerable persons being chosen. Mm-hmm. I had heard, um, or I read somewhere, I think, uh, it, um, I think I read this in the book, kind of just looking at um, the various pontificates of the 20th century and kind of what we, what, what the writer or other writers have been able to glean of how the conclave voting uh, unfolded. That um, he, you know, in his case, it was wavering to and fro, as I recall. There was, um, it was an interesting time. Um, Father Nagel would be great to be on the show for this one because he's the historian, of course, but. You know, ever since Pope Pius IX, when the Vatican city states were taken away from the Vatican, and Pope Pius IX uh, just locked himself in the Vatican and declared himself a prisoner, and that's been the way of it with every pope. Uh, I think until John the Twenty Third, I think he was the first pope to step out of the Vatican, um, and so there was this kind of interior debate among the cardinals, like maybe it's time we start now to engage the world. The world is moving on, and, and others saying, no, this has been an injustice. We're staying locked in, and in this kind of tug of, tug of war, it's not quite liberal conservative, but two camps nonetheless. And so he's talking about how the voting conclave would waver to and fro, maybe toward one camp and then toward another. And, and I think I'd read that uh, finally it did land on him as kind of the, the safe middle ground choice. And uh, probably much to a surprise, like, now, come on, you were going in that direction, in that direction. And then it comes back to me, are you kidding me? I, you know, I don't know if he would actually say that, but, I mean, you know, what he says here, maybe it came to him as a great shock uh, because he had saw it moving away from him and toward one of these other uh, contenders. And it ended up on him anyway. So um, and so I think that was I think that's part of the story why he, maybe he was elected. He's kind of seen as a safe middle ground um, that might 
kind of pacify these two camps. Um, well, and they had come from a pontificate that had lasted a number of years. And mm-hmm. so sometimes they look for a candidate that they think is a little bit older yeah. and so is not going to be around for quite as long and kind of give things a chance to settle out a bit. And I think that was the sense they had about him. Yeah, that makes sense too. I think he was I think he was as old as Pope Benedict when he was like that. I think he was 78 or 79. I think so. Yeah. And he only lasted five or maybe yeah, five years I think. Well, they tried that game after Pope Pius IX, who was Pope for like almost 40 years, and then they chose 79-year-old, I think he was 79, Pope Leo XIII, who would go on to live to 93. Mm -hmm. So we outlived all the younger cardinals that voted him in. (laughs) (laughs) So sometimes that can backfire on you, but um, I think that would be, uh, that makes sense why that'd be part of their their choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he... Very interesting life. I don't know if you've read much about his life. Uh, he was a diplomat, I think, or almost yeah. all of his career, I think. So he was uh, the papal nuncio for, I, I think, at least three different countries, including, I think, um, uh, the Dominican Republic. I thought he was somewhere in the in the in the Caribbean, I think, for a time, as I recall. And then, um, so yeah, he was a, he was a, in the diplomatic corps, I guess, and was a diplomat. And he he did um, he had outreaches to groups that were typically not. Like he didn't spend a lot of time reaching out to them, like even mm. communists and the the Jewish people. He had done a lot to try to like build some bridges, and so he was seen as a man that could bring the church more fully into contact with the world in a way that would be like shining the light of Christ. Yeah, um, in the modern world, and um, that led very naturally into the Second Vatican Council. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, let's let's go to that quote. There is a quote uh, at the bottom of the first page, Father, on the Second uh, Second uh, Vatican II. The, ecumenic, the ecumenical council will surely be even more than a new and magnificent Pentecost, a real and new epiphany, one of the many revelations which have been re- uh, renewed and are continually being renewed in the course of history, but one of the greatest of all. I never, I never knew they said this about the Vatican Council, and um, boy, a, a new epiphany. That's uh, that's really setting the bar pretty high. And yeah, I, I wondered what what was his uh, motive for calling for the Second Vatican Council. The First Vatican Council never really finished. I think they just had to go home because revolutions were starting all over Europe, and I think they only had one session and uh, uh, maybe approved one document. So I understand that Vatican II actually began to formally close Vatican I. And then they began Vatican II. I don't know if that's accurate, but I, I've heard that. But it, get, it, it makes sense. I mean, Vatican I, if it were allowed to un- unfold, who knows if they would have even called Vatican II. But the world had changed so much. The American Revolution, then the French Revolution even more, having an impact on the, the trajectory of Europe, you know, colonialism going on, uh, the world uh, just getting smaller as uh, more and more you know, Europeans anyway, just finding it easier and easier to expand and get out into the world and encountering all these new cultures and finding have, having to find out new ways to proclaim the gospel uh, to these new situations. I suspect that was part of uh, the purpose of Vatican I, but it was just ended too abruptly. Well, maybe it was apropos or, you know, according to Providence, because since then we've had the two world wars, the rise of communism, these massive, massive evils that have resulted because of all of that. And um, and so, yeah, an epiphany, maybe it, not a true epiphany as in something totally new, but a reminder of something that we had forgotten because of the horrors and atrocities of the early 20th century, that God is in charge. Uh, his church is here on earth, ready to serve and ready to proclaim the gospel. And um, and so that would just strike a great number of people in this world as as uh, as completely new because they were raised in a world or or shocked into a new world that, that God has nothing to do with that. They need to be reminded. Um, anyway, I guess that's I guess that could be one reason why you would dec- you know compare it to the Epiphany. That's it's kind of a bold statement, but I guess given the what was going on in the context, it makes sense. Well, you know, it's uh, what you began with uh, also jumped out at me is that I've always heard of the New Pentecost, right? But not a new Epiphany. But if you think like, what is it that links Epiphany and a Pentecost together? It's this idea of outward facing, right? The epiphany is all about you're drawing in the wise men, right? Those that are not part of the Jewish people or the people of God. 
being drawn to the light, being drawn to the one that's shining forth in this world, um, Jesus Christ. And then Pentecost, obviously the same thing. The Spirit comes in order to send them out into the world. So mm-hmm. there's that outward-facing aspect that um, John the 23rd is highlighting here. Now, my understanding was that he, when he was elected Pope, they had already begun some preparatory work for the idea of a, a council. And that, you know, begun by Pius Twelfth, And his principal emphasis was, um, uh, like, uh, to build up, build back, or restore um, orthodoxy that was being threatened through certain novelties theologically. And so, like, let's call a council. It'll last a couple of months. Let's create, crank out some documents, and let's just sort of get the, the theological foundations in place and, uh, and, and let it be, you know, what— pretty much every council had been previously a doctrinally focused council to address mm-hmm. uh, heterodoxy or um, uh, or theological errors mm-hmm. and get orthodoxy to be reestablished. So that, that was my understanding. And then there was a bit of a surprise that when he comes in, he shifts around some of the, um, the, the voices that were um, shaping what was going to happen at the council. And so the commissions that were get guiding the preparatory work for the council all of a sudden had these, this new impulse of uh, other um, church leaders and theological minds that were like, you know, we maybe need to not just focus on those documents produced by the Roman College and by uh, the Curia, but we need to open this up and bring in more of a worldwide voice. So, well, we're up against a break, Father. When we come back, I want to talk about this idea of an epiphany uh, or a new Pentecost uh, at lunch yesterday. Okay, so (laughs) we're going to go back. I want to bring up a topic because we spent some time yesterday together, and I thought some really neat things happened. But you'll learn about that in a minute on Sound Insight. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Carnum with Father Jeff Lewis. And uh, Father Lewis, we're here on this Feast of St. John the 23rd, and we just read a quote about uh, the Second Vatican Council. It was about being open to the world in new ways, a new level of engagement, a new level of dialogue for the sake of accomplishing the, the call to be salt, light, and leaven in the world. And um, in some ways, I see, among all the darkness and difficulties and challenges the church is facing now to be that in the world, I see the Lord also at work um, moving in p- very powerful ways. And if you've been listening to Sound Insight, you've heard me talk about and share some of those ways that I see that happening around this concept of a classical model of education, that just coalescing around that are families that are very intentional about living their faith, forming a culture together with others that are embodying and expressing, being an epiphany of these uh, manifestation of these Uh, Catholic and Christian ideals in the world. And that can be a beautiful hedge of defense against the anti-gospel happening across society today that puts at risk so much of our life of faith. So that's a big introduction right there, Father. (laughs) All of that while you were eating brisket yesterday at lunch. (laughs) It was good. (laughs) What happened uh, yesterday at lunch, Father? Well, I was invited by, you know, you invited me to um, uh, come to the Oaks uh, Christian Academy, which is a, uh, a private school in the classical tradition here in Spokane Valley, um, a Christian, uh, but not a particular brand of Christian, I think, just, you know, pretty non-denominational in terms of who can attend and maybe who teaches there, and but very classical, and um, an, um, another another priest was there, there were a couple of friends of yours who were there, and another um, another couple who were there, and and a member of the Spokane City Council is there, and I'm looking around the table, and I said, except for the headmaster who's leading this and his development director, the rest of us are Catholic, so I thought that was that was interesting, but uh, I'm also looking around at the books on the bookshelf. There's Chrysostom, there's Athanasius, there's Augustine, Augustine again, Peter Kreef, G.K. Chesson. Bonaventure, huh. all these Ignatius Press books. Yeah. <laughs> all these uh, Catholics on like, the... Is this a Catholic school? <laughs> yeah. What school is this? Yeah, and... Um, it was a chance to uh, meet the headmaster and then to um, get a sense of what the what the school is about, why we do it, how we do uh, what we do, and uh, and what and how we do it. Um, but it began with why, and it was it was, you know, it was exactly to say, you know, we uh, it, we we've perceived that um, the the public schools and 
uh, it's just not cutting it uh, for these families that want more for their children, that want a, a, a deeper education for their children. And, um, and so the uh, Oaks Academy was uh, the fruit of their labors, um, and they were cel- so we're celebrating, they're celebrating 25 years now, going to 26. So we had a presentation, kind of a sense of who they were and who they are now and where they want to go. And then we had a chance to tour the, the school, and we visited um, three or four of the classes. We visited third grade. Uh, we visited uh, a, a rhetoric class of the uh, sophomores, I think, and then we uh, visited, I think it was freshman Latin too. Yeah, it was the eighth grade class. Eighth grade class Latin too, which that one in my mind was the most striking because the the instructor is teaching them in Latin. I think only uh, two or three English words were spoken, and that was to greet us when we came in. Whenever he was asking the kids a, a question. It was in Latin. They they better understand what he's asking, I guess. And uh, and then they're reading passages in a Latin text uh, in a dialogue fashion, so they're speaking back and forth to each other. But he's just speaking conversationally to them and instructing in Latin. That was pretty impressive myself. And um, uh, anyway, so it was a good tour, um, and uh, and I was I was pretty impressed. And so uh, um, yeah, it was just a it was a great experience. We we got ex- exposed to a, a new a, a, well for me a, a different a different model of education that um, just is a whole lot richer, I think. Well, and and you know this idea of the trivium, right? Where the first stage is about memorization, and weren't you blown away by the second graders mm-hmm. and those math? You know they had those historical facts, and they were linking a world history to biblical history. Mm-hmm. And the kids knew these dates and these chapters of the Genesis, and they just were going on in the days of I'm like, okay, um, is that right? I'm like, <laughs> yeah. they knew Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. They were naming the event in the chapter, and they were linking it to when it happened historically, right? Especially when you got to um, captivity in Egypt and Abraham and, and uh, Moses, you know, just laid it out. I, that was, I was really struck by that. Yeah. I don't know if that struck you at all. Yeah, and and I was I was uh, happy to hear from the headmaster. You know, this is what we do, but really why we do it. It's it's uh, the little kids, the little minds, uh, the younger minds are just they're just sponges, and so they can soak it all in. And and he said, you know, we all know this as parents. You know, you all know this because they're monkey see, monkey do. They are watching and absorbing like everything that you say and do, and. Um, but they don't let the education stop there. It's not just purely a manufacturing company where we just kind of input data and then out comes a, uh, an educated child. But that's the youngest age. And so then he goes on to, okay, so now here's how you can piece together what you know to form you know, logical sentences. So I think it was memorization and, and it was logic. So now you can you know, logically communicate what, why you know what you know and how it fits. And then from that, you can start to form arguments. So memorizing facts, being able to put together sentences and, and paragraphs, and then from that being able to, to lay out arguments and presentations. And, um, and it's, a, it's an organic growth in, in the approach to education as the organic child organically is growing too. So I think that was why he took us to those three particular classes to see the, the three different kind of age groups uh, of the three different stages in this trivium. Well, and um, I, the, one of the reasons why I wanted you to come is that uh, – and, and Father Jose and the others that were there is that, you know, I've done um, so much to connect families to St. Charles and to the Chesterton Academy, have promoted St. Monica's and Our Lady Star of the Sea and the Aquinas Classical Academy, St. Mark's and Shoreline. And I've heard you and Father Nagel just talk about the this bulwark that Catholic schools can be mm-hmm. when they're not overrun or overwhelmed by families and students that do not bring a living faith or an intentional approach to faith and just how critical the schooling that that aspect of things will be mm-hmm. and um just so that vision of saying you know like saint charles is pretty much full like mm-hmm. with waiting lists mm-hmm. right chesterton is full mm-hmm. with a waiting list it's like we can't do enough to get more schools to let's just say this: whether the classical becomes the, the um, the hinge, that turns things, 
Things need to be turned Mm -hmm. in order to have schools be intentional places that foster a culture of faith in order to promote real authentic discipleship among the kids' lives and trace it back in the families. I know you're you're really passionate about that. So I just thought having you come to the Oaks, it would be a wonderful way to say, okay, um, as you know, you're my pastor here. You're like, okay, I I bless this. You got to see my kids in action, at least yeah. a couple of them. Um, that oh wow, this is actually like wonderfully supportive of their Catholic faith. But also, hey, what can we do? What's God doing here? What's God doing here to promote more of this in in homes and in school settings? Yeah, yeah. It was it was it was incredible seeing. I was I you know happy to hear not just. Um, testimonials from some of the others around the table, just, uh, you know, the overall uh, development of character in, in those kids. So it's not just a, a, the education they receive, but the whole person formation that is part of the culture. And I think it was, um, I think it was the uh, city council member who had said that when he had first gone to uh, the Oaks and he stepped into the front foyer, um, one of the students just happened to be passing by, stopped, dropped everything, and asked, um, how can I help you? And was ready to, to guide him to where he needed to go. And uh, just that immediate um, response of hospitality and a joyful hospitality at that. Um, you know, and, and, and if I were to step into your kind of your standard school, outside of St. Mary's, of course, we are a very fine school. <laughs> Outside of that, maybe you know one of the uh, public schools or something like that. Uh, I think if I might stepped in, first of all, if I stepped in wearing a collar, I might get these kind of like sidelong looks of like, "Who's this weirdo?" And then maybe I just kind of be left to 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 my own devices and just kind of have to wander around. At which point I'm arrested because I'm a stalker or something like this. You know, um, you know, I, I I could be overgeneralizing and that could be unfair to uh, some of our area public schools, but. Uh, but uh, I, I don't know if the, um, the joyful outreach and hospitality of newcomers and guests would have been the, the first reaction of a lot of the students, like, like was testified at our meeting uh, at the Oaks. Yeah. And so it's the richness of the overall character development. And that's the, that's the concern I have at St. Mary um, and, and my principal as well, Ben Walker, is I, he said, we're not in the business to just cram these minds with facts and figures but to form the whole person. We're going to be intentional about forming the whole person. We may not have the classical approach. It might be more STEM emphasis, but, um, but our overall approach nonetheless remains that it's the whole person uh, in, in the image and likeness of, of God uh, that we are after here. And um, so the intentionality um, is, um, is, uh, is what I appreciated seeing at the Oaks, and I, I felt like I was affirmed at how we're doing at St. Mary's is uh, in many ways in much the same the same vein. Yeah, it's um, and and you know how much I appreciate your efforts on discipling, um, evangelizing and discipling young people and equipping them to be missionary disciples in the world. So um, I, I love that you felt uh, positive about that experience. All right, back in a minute. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Carnum with Father Jeff Lewis, and uh, we're just uh, we're chatting about uh, well renewal. Where's where's renewal happening? How is it happening today? What's God up to? And what was really cool is uh, I was with one of the parent leaders that is involved at both Chesterton and at St. Charles. And afterwards, we're like, okay, we got to get another Chesterton built. How do we build another one? Because there's just too many kids. There's just too many kids at high school level, right? Mm-hmm. It's at that high school level. And I, it was one of the things I said to Father Lappy over in um, uh, over at uh, Star of the Sea is that what he has there is so powerful because he has the K through 12 covered right on site. Mm-hmm. And that's just so rare because, you know, with your heart for high school kids, whether it is the Melchizedek group or the apologetics group, and I always call it apologetti because I can't remember <laughs> the... Uh, Ours is much more St. Justin Martyr Sorry, Society. Sorry, St. Justin Martyr. I'm thinking, what, which, which early fa- apostolic father is it? The St. Justin Martyr Society, um, that you have such a care to form and to you know, help protect the faith of high school kids that um, you know it would be great to have more Catholic high schools that 
foster that, right? Yeah. Right now I've got one that I have confidence in and it's full, mm-hmm. right? The, the other one I don't have confidence in that it's actually forming Catholic disciples. In fact, I just regularly hear stories that the opposite is happening. Yeah. So um, so we need to, to bolster and build more classical schools. I, I like the classical model because it's smaller, mm-hmm. right? It's not trying to get 1,000 kids, 2,000 kids. No, you, two classes of 20 kids per grade. If you can get that across 12 grades, we're covered. Or at the high school level across four grades, it's 160 kids and rinse, repeat. Mm-hmm. Let's, get, let's get another one going, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, it, why is it for you, Father, that, uh, that high school kids are such an important focus of your ministry? Well, high school kids, and uh, by extension, of course, uh, just the great younger uh, ages beneath them, the middle school grade, because um, this is the age where, um, you know, frankly, if you're a teenager, by definition, I think you're insane, because your body is changing, your mind is changing, the hormones are aging, and you, you know not what you do. But if, you know, it, it, there's got to be a, an outside positive uh, force, I think, exerted upon the teenage mind to, to try to make sense of the chaos and to try to keep saying the insane. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and stats bear this out, I think, just with regard to faith. You know, there's a, a great ministry in our country, Focus Missionaries, that are on uh, college campuses around the country. And why Curtis Martin founded Focus in the beginning was because of the sad statistics that something like 85% of Catholics stop practicing their faith when they get to college, but subsequent studies have shown that's when they act upon a decision that they basically already made in their minds as young as 12, 13. So to to try to reverse that trend and to give them a reason why we believe what we believe, precisely at that age when they're when they're filled with zeal and gust, gusto to want to, you know, conquer the world and change it, you know, that's already been done by Jesus. So to get them excited about the mission that's already there and that's already ongoing, I guess that's part of my, my passion for that. And uh, I feel like I had that when I was, um, you know, a, a teenager. Uh, I had great influences around me, and and um, but I lament that that seems to be on the decrease because the iPhone is on the increase, you know, and and uh, social media is on the increase. And so if we're not intentional and deliberate about helping these young minds already in a state of massive flux to be formed properly, then something else will form them for us, whether we like it or not. And um, so I, I'm, I feel charged to step right in, which is, I guess, a part of the reason why I've been so proactive in helping, um, wanting to help young people to discern their vocation. And people will say, why don't you help them to discern marriage? Well, marriage is kind of one of those vocations that, uh, it comes naturally, you know. <laughs> the, yeah, the discernment is natural there. We're trying to help kids to th- give some, you know, some substantial thought and prayer to the supernatural vocations. And um, anyway, so I think all that's of a piece. You know, just uh, if if we're not deliberate and intentional, and we're in, in a positive force, then then nothing, you know, the supernatural and the natural abhors a vacuum, and it will be filled for us. Well, and I love that grace builds on nature. I think that that um, actually speaks to the the genius of the uh, the classical model of forming kids in the trivium, right? It's it's the nature of, of a young person is memory gets formed first, and then you form the reason, and then you uh, impact the will to be able to use a way to in, you know to to uh, communicate what it is that you, you're learning. Um, but um, you're right as regards vocation. Um, the supernatural is going to be built on the natural, mm. right? So to form these kids in natural virtues, um, there will be a supernaturalizing of their vision of marriage, right? Boy, how much more do we need to have married couples realize that, you know, your first call is sanctification here. This is a sacrament of service by which you become a saint by pouring out your life so that your spouse becomes a saint and any children that you're given become saints. And you're going to do that by leading, providing, and protecting them. If you're not doing those things, I don't care what kind of house you live in. I don't care what job you have. I don't care what title you have, how much money you make, how much stuff you have, how many fun things you get your kids to do and where you take them on vacations. Those things just don't matter. Those things don't matter. If you don't get the supernatural side, right. But the supernatural side, oh, guess what? If you want to do those things, you better also be formed naturally to be, you know, pure and modest and chaste and to have justice and moderation and fortitude and um, temperance, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, no, I meant temperance and fortitude. I missed one. 
Courage. Uh, you said fortitude. I said fortitude. Temperance. Prudence. 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 Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. I, I, I know my cardinal virtues. <laughs> but you, know, you mix up moderation and temperance. You mix, mix up courage and fortitude, right? It's easy. It's easy to forget those. All right. Sorry. Um, so, yeah, um, the supernatural call, the supernaturalizing of that sense of vocation that, you know what? You, you can't be anything you want to be. Hmm. You just can't. But you get to be the one that God is calling you to be if you're willing to really discern and follow. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want for my kids. Yeah. I want that more than anything else is become a saint by fulfilling the mission that God has given you for your life. Well, and how countercultural is that what you just said that, you know, the sad reality is you can't be anything that you want to be. You know, I, w- I would never I was never going to be, um, for example, given given my body's proportions, I was never going to be the coxswain on a row team. I would just the, the, the boat would capsize, you know, so, <laughs> you know, that's not who God made me to be. But and that's countercultural. Of course, you can be whoever you want to be. And and that's just that's just not true and not, not in the realm of the natural. But if we would uh, just build upon the gifts we've been given in the natural realm to, to proceed with the supernatural, then. We want to, and it sounds constricting to say, but we can flourish as who God wants us to be. But that's the key word is flourish. If we per- per- proceed according to God's plan, then we're going to know the fullness of, of, of flourishing here in this life and um, and in the life of the world to come, and we'll be as happy as can be. Some of the happiest people I know are some of the simplest people that I know, but they're flourishing precisely in where God wants them to be. And... Um, and a great maybe analogy of that if I if a if a river could just be whatever it wanted to be then it breaks its banks that are so confining and well now it's ceased to be a river and it's just a stagnant disgusting death filled swamp but within those bounds of the river bank it's a powerful flow of water and it can it can move concrete it can sh- shatter rocks it can generate electricity it can do all kinds of these great things precisely because it is doing what God had created it to do. And so with the human spirit, I think, and the human person. Yes. So uh, today on Sound Insight, I'm with Father Jeff Lewis, and um, we're just sharing some uh, some comments here about um, wanting to be formed, right? Wanting to be formed in a way that we can actually form others to fulfill their vocation and, and how important that is, and reflecting on Catholic schools and all of that. I think we have time for one more comment, uh, one more quote, Father, but just one more. So uh-huh. is there one you want to go to? Is there, uh, in the short moment that we have here, that you're, you're looking... You're mad scramble. Yeah, I know. So I might turn. Uh, he's got a, a statement here on the Holy Rosary, mostly in honor of we're in the month of the Rosary. October seven was uh, the feast of the Rosary and the uh, anniversary of the Battle of Lepanto. And he said, uh, "Do you want to read it?" Yeah, please. Okay. Here, here we go. This is the Rosary of Mary, considered in its various elements, which are linked together in vocal prayer and woven into it as a delicate and rich embroidery, full of spiritual warmth and beauty. What caught my attention, in addition to this being about the rosary, was that last bit, the the the, the wonderful and rich description, a delicate and rich embroidery, embroidery full of spiritual warmth and beauty. Um, if we would uh, it's kind of just a, a pause before we start working the beads and think, what is it that I'm doing here? Meditating on the rich and glorious elements, uh, uh, scenes in the life of Our Lady and Our Lord, Her Son. Um, and, and maybe to uh, attach some particular prayer intentions to the decades as we're praying them, um, we can really make the rosary a very rich prayer indeed, and, uh, and, and a great source of consolation, and, and it's a beautiful prayer. I mean, he nails it right here. It's, it's, uh, it, otherwise, embroideries, if we just slap them on the wall just to, for decoration, that's like taking the rosary that great-grandma prayed with and putting it on a shelf, and that's just decoration. But to to really appreciate the richness that is there and so and so so little thing such a little thing um, we could we could just take what we already are given and, and make great richer more uh, more beautiful use of it yeah amen to that well uh, you know so much to say about uh, the gift of the rosary I'll have a chance to do that more uh, fully uh, in the course of this month um, just an encouragement discover the rosary if you haven't and rediscover it if uh, if it's something that you've left behind Um, or go deeper into it if it's something that uh, the Lord has given to you as a gift. Well, Father Lewis, thanks for being with me today on Sound Insight. We made it through without Father Nagel. I don't know how we survived. Pure miracle. Pure miracle. Gift of God's grace. All right. Join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight.